As you're turning there, I have to tell you one of the things that concerns oftentimes their misunderstanding of Christianity. I found that people often misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. And they either misunderstand it and therefore reject it, which means they're not really rejecting Christianity at all, they're just rejecting their mistaken notion of it. Or they would say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but not really understanding what that actually involves. And so those are some of my favorite kinds of conversations to have with folks. Not in an argumentative or debating fashion, but um, just in asking questions. Hey, tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking there, about what you think it means to be a Christian. Why is that something you're opposed to, or why does that think that's something that you that you are? And so, asking those questions and getting them to to state more explicitly their belief really many times opens the door for deeper conversation, for going to God's Word and saying, well, you know, here's what God's Word has to say about that. Allows the opportunity to inform, to shape, maybe even to correct the misunderstanding. And by and large, I found that if somebody misunderstands Christianity, they're misunderstanding Jesus. And this is not a new problem Right? It's not, nothing unique to our time. It's been going on for thousands of years. In fact, it's why John wrote his gospel. He knew folks were prone to misunderstand. And so the purpose for his writing was so that they would understand, that they would know who Jesus was. John says it explicitly toward the end of his gospel there in the 20th chapter. He says, I've picked these particular episodes and instances from Jesus' life, because I couldn't write about them all, but I picked these so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in knowing, in believing in his name, you might have life. And so whether John's readers came from pagan backgrounds that didn't have any real knowledge of the God of Israel or whether they were the most extremely religious folks steeped in the teachings of Moses. We're going to see going into this gospel further that the misunderstandings run deep and often. We're finishing up the prologue this morning. We spent several weeks in the first 18 verses of the gospel, this introduction. And we're going to see finally this morning two very important verses And really just one three-word phrase in one of those verses that shed so much light, that give us so much help in understanding rightly who Jesus is and therefore what Christianity is all about. So I want to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Just five verses, John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us your help this morning? Our ability to understand rightly has been impacted by the fall. But you long to reveal yourself. You do not want to remain hidden. Uh, You have not tried to hide yourself or make things obscure. You even went so far as to take on flesh that we might know what you're like, that we might know you. And so, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you come in these moments in your particular ways of power, and would you help us? Would you continue to reveal yourself to us that we might know you, that we might love you, and indeed that we might serve you? We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So how is it that folks misunderstand Jesus? What have you heard? What have you encountered in your conversations when, when, when spiritual things come up and, and you get to talking, well, I, I'm a Christian, or I go to such and such church, or, or this is what I believe? What are the things that you hear that people are misunderstanding about Christianity? It's probably something tonight we'll discuss further in our 242 groups, right? What, what are you hearing in your conversations with people? One simple way that this comes out, one simple way that you can get at this if you were trying to ask a probing question or get a little more involved is to talk in terms of what is it that Jesus gives us? What, what does he offer us? Did he come to give us an example to follow? Is that why he came? Is that what he offers to us as an example? Well, i got to tell you, if you're you're looking for a role model, you could do a lot worse than Jesus. But if you look at the whole of Scripture, it doesn't really bear that out that that's the reason that he came for the purpose of being our role model. Did he come to offer us, did he come to give us a great message that we need to listen to, that we need to apply to our lives and order our lives around, a great message of love and of peace? Is that it? It's definitely what I've heard in conversations with folks, that they, that's why he came. A message of love, a message of peace. Well, Jesus didn't come as a great messenger either. In fact, verse 15 that we just read, 
if, if we just needed a great message from a great messenger, uh, John the Baptist here, he could have done that nicely. He was sent from God. He had a message. That could have worked if that had been the point. But John the Baptist got it. He knew that he wasn't the point. It says in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is before me. See, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the point, and he knew that it was something about who he was and what he came to give, what he had to offer. And that made Jesus much more important than John the Baptist himself. So no, Jesus didn't come to give us any of those things. Not an example, not a great message. Verse 16 in our passage today tells us explicitly what he came to give, tells us what we have received from Jesus. And he says in verse 16, it is grace upon grace that we have received. Now, until this week, I always read that and took it to mean that he gave us grace and then even more grace, right? On top of what we already have, like a, a grace bonanza, right? Grace for days, more grace than you could shake a stick at. And so we would come away from that verse praising the generosity of Jesus, right? So much grace. But this week, getting to spend lots of time on a few verses, pondering, meditating, reading some folks much smarter than me, and looking into my Greek New Testament and slowly bumbling my way through the verses with rusty Greek, I've definitely come to a different opinion about that little phrase. And it all hinges on that little pronoun translated upon, grace upon grace, as the ESV translates it. Now I want to pause for just a second. And I want to tell you how reluctant I am to say what I'm about to say. Because I'm about to tell you that I'm not crazy about what most of the translations have done here with this pronoun, with this preposition, upon. And I'm going to suggest to you that you think a little differently about it. I'm very reluctant to do that for two big reasons, and I'll tell you why. Number one, we've, we've been talking about translations a little bit in Sunday school. Shameless plug number one. I'm reluctant to say this type of thing to you for two big reasons. Number one is, I don't want you to come away thinking that you've got to have some knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, that you've got to have some advanced degree to be able to study God's Word. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what I want you to come away with. Please don't hear me saying that. I don't want you to feel like you've got to search and dig for some hidden, deeper meaning that's veiled and, and somehow secret from you. Please don't hear me saying that. Please don't think that. So that's the first big reason. The second reason I'm reluctant to do this, to say these types of things, is that I don't want to plant a seed of doubt in your mind where you say, oh, well, if this is wrong, then I wonder what else it got wrong, right? Don't hear me saying that because this isn't a matter of something being wrong, what it is a matter of is that if you translate something between two languages, you've got a lot of decisions to make. 
If you got this word over here in the language that you're working from, and it's got a whole range of meanings, and then you're translating it into this language over here, you got to pick a word, and that word has a whole range of meanings. Okay, you got to make choice. It's, it's hard, y'all. It's hard to get this apples to apples comparison in between languages. Okay, and sometimes in that, y'all, I had a really great graphic. I'm, no, I'm not even going to try to describe it. Sometimes in that process of picking a word in the original language that has all of its range of possible meanings and picking a single word in the new language with all of its range of possible meanings, sometimes in that process, the subtleties are lost. The nuances, if you will, but that is all that they are. Subtleties and nuances. Right? From all my studies, okay, probably more than 20 years of, of trying to do serious Bible study. Right? Certainly more serious since I went to seminary and became a pastor. But in all of those studies, never have I seen any significant part of our doctrine lost in one of these translation things. Not even once, right? No important, vital part of our faith, right? Everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need for knowing and embracing Jesus as he's freely offered in the gospel, y'all, all that stuff translates crystal clear. Right? Where I have run across little things, little quibbles with, well, why'd you pick that word instead of this word? Now, that is not around the major parts of our doctrine. So, raises the question, especially in my mind, I ask it to myself all the time, why would I ever say something like what I'm doing today, taking an issue, being a little nitpicky about a particular word? Right? I probably do it 10% of the time where I've come across something and I'm like, eh, I don't really like that. Okay? Several times already in John, right? We could have had a long discussion about uh, the only Son of God earlier in this passage, right? The, 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 that word is rich. We could really dig in there, but this isn't the time or the place for that. When I pick those 10% of the times, I do it because I think that it has the opportunity, like this example today, of helping you understand Jesus just a little bit better. Giving you just a little more clarity on something, especially the gospel. Man, if I can help you see that maybe from just a slightly different angle or take the, uh, another opportunity to explain it in a, another way so that you can come through at the end with a deeper appreciation for Jesus and what he's done, a clearer understanding of what the gospel is, of what Christianity is and what it is not, then I want to take the effort to do that. Grace upon grace is what the ESV does. Some of you are, depending on the Bible that you have, if you've got the ESV, sometimes that gets footnoted, and at the bottom it says, in place of grace, in place of grace. If you have the New American Standard, it also says upon, but it footnotes it, and it says literally, grace for grace. And so this little preposition, upon, 
right? Anti in the Greek does have the idea behind it of replacement. One thing replacing another thing, right? So grace instead of grace. Grace in place of grace. And if you hang with me for just a second, I want to show you why I do think this is helpful and it's worth the time for understanding Jesus and for understanding Christianity. If you look at verse 16, and you read it with that preposition that has some element of replacement to it, right? And from his fullness, we have all received grace for grace, or grace replacing grace. And right off the bat, you're thinking, this helps how? (laughs) Because this just kind of seems more confusing. (laughs) How does grace replace grace? Right? Shameless plug number two for Sunday school class, where we're learning together how to study God's Word where we've been talking about context. And then if you hit a verse and it's a little fuzzy and you think, how does grace replace grace? Well, then broaden your context just a little bit, even a tiny bit by just going to the verse before, or in this case, the verse after. And then read your fuzzy, unclear verse with that other verse and see if it makes a little bit better sense. And when we do that with 16, grace replacing grace, or grace instead of grace, and we read it with 17, Oh, but if the light bulb doesn't start to come on a little bit. So let's do that. Verse 16 and 17. I'm replacing the the preposition there. For from his fullness we have all received grace, replacing grace. Grace instead of grace. For, that's a good connecting word there. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, there's a link between these verses. It's what the for is there for, right? It's actually a tight link. Because what John's talking about in 16 is related to what he's talking about in 17. So, Moses gave some grace, but from Jesus we receive other grace. Now, if you're really paying close attention, you say, oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say Moses gave grace. It says Moses gave law. Okay, yes. In 16 it says, uh, in 17 it says Moses gave us the law, right? But again, look at them together. And we've got this correspondence. Grace for grace, law, and grace and truth. And John's not setting up a contrast there in 17. Right? There is no but in the middle of 17. Look at it closely. It's not saying Moses gave us law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. It simply lists what each gave. Moses' law, Jesus' grace and truth. And when you pair that with 16, you see that that is grace for grace. Now, how in the world should we, could we view law that Moses gave as grace. Is that that possible? Oh, it's quite possible. See, it was a huge part of God revealing himself to his people. Let me show you what I'm like. I'll give you my law. I'll show you the things that I want you to do and don't want you to do. And you see my character reflected in that. Right? You look at the Ten Commandments, 
you know a lot about what God is like, what he values, what he detests, what he expects of us. Y'all, that's gracious, right? That he would explicitly say, here's what I want from you. Do you realize that the vast majority of world religions, all the activity involved is out of ignorance and fear and just, oh, they're trying to make some kind of sacrifice, do some kind of ritual that might possibly keep the gods happy. And we're just not even sure. But let me try to go to this little altar and and feed the god. I'm going to bring some food or let me burn this incense or light this candle or or cut myself, or beat myself, or whatever, in hopes that I can somehow meet whatever his, her, its expectations are. No, y'all, it's grace that he would reveal himself so clearly by giving his law. Now, is the grace of the law as great as the grace that Jesus brings? No way, not even close. Right? It's like Moses gave grace with a, a little g in 10-point font. Right? But Jesus comes and it's all caps, bold, underlined, and italicized. This is grace that he's given. Moses gave little g grace. He showed us what God is like, what we ought to do. But Jesus gives grace and truth. And so if, you, if you're here last week, you've got to remember that's a necessary combo. We need both from Jesus. It says in verse 14 that he's full of grace and truth. And, and then John reiterates it again in 17, grace and truth. And so this is probably what I'm most sad about, about the slides. I had this great little, I drew a sandwich for you. Because I think that this grace and truth is kind of like a bad news sandwich. So, in your mind's eye, imagine, if you will, the top slice of bread that is good news. It's, it's, it's the good news of the grace of the law. Okay? Wherein we see a little of what God is like, what he expects of us. Okay? That's good. But then comes a big, tough, thick slice of hard-to-chew bad news. Right, We can't keep that law. We're not able. In fact, it condemns us in our inability to keep it. It's a good thing. It's holy. It's gracious. And we're not up to the task. None of us. It's a noose around our neck. It is a burden that we cannot bear. That's the truth part of grace and truth. And that would be our undoing if our sandwich had no bottom. But our sandwich has another slice of good news, bread. Gracious bread in that Jesus. The great grace that he offers. It doesn't contradict that good news of the law, that graciousness of the law. It doesn't come in opposition to it and say, oh, that was a terrible thing now. This No, it's not a contradiction. It's a progression. It's grace upon grace. It's grace for grace. And so what Jesus comes and he does 
And he tells you in the Gospels, I didn't didn't come to abolish the law. I came to what? I came to fulfill it perfectly. I came to do what you can't do. He replaces the grace of the law with the grace that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in our place, in our stead, because we didn't wouldn't because we couldn't do it. And y'all, that is 90% of what folks misunderstand about Christianity. It boils down to that, right? It's not about what Jesus wants you to do for him. It's about what Jesus has finished and completed for you. The law that Moses, the grace that Moses gave through the law was grace. But the grace that we receive from Jesus is, is, is grace on steroids, right? It covers all our sins and it changes our lives. It changes our hearts. It changes our wills. It does, in fact, lead us to wanting to obey Jesus because we now get the, that law. Oh, it is holy and good. Oh, it is God's good intention and his design for me. People, I'll go back to the sandwich thing. People misunderstand Jesus. They get Christianity wrong when they have an incomplete sandwich, right? Have you ever had an incomplete sandwich? Have you ever done one of these low-carb things where you don't have bread and you wrap your burger with lettuce or something? That's, that's just dumb. That's not a sandwich. That is, that is an incomplete sandwich, right? Um, or maybe you've just had, you know, we, we do this a lot. You have an open face sandwich, right? Just a piece of bread and chopped up roast beef and gravy. That's good. Um, but that's, that's not a sandwich. We need a complete sandwich. Folks around us, if they're going to understand Christianity, if they're going to understand Jesus, they need a complete sandwich. We're going to see quite often in John's gospel that the religious folks of the day, y'all, they just had a single slice of bread. They only had the law. Right? Law, law, law. Isn't it great? It's all we need. It's an end to itself. Right? We'll do the law. We'll be good. We'll add to the law. We'll double down on the law. We'll be really careful about the law. It's great. It's all we need. They didn't have any meat. They didn't have that thick slice of tough, unchewable, whatever it was, that said, "Um, no, you can't. (laughs) You think that you're doing all you need to do and you're not coming close. A lot of folks today, a lot of church-going folks even, have an incomplete sandwich. They've got the law. They might even have some slice in the middle of, yeah, I'm a bad, I'm, I'm a bad person. I'm, I'm, I sin. I do wrong things. But on the bottom of their sandwich, they put another one of the top slices. They put more law on the bottom. They say, gosh, I, if I just tried a little harder, I, I know that I've screwed up. If, if I just... If I just become a more disciplined person, if I just become a more loving person, if I just become a more generous person, that's what I need to do. But what John really wants us to know, and he's mentioned it twice now in this prologue in verse 14 and 17, is that grace and truth come through Jesus. The truth of our need, the grace of his provision 
for that need. That's such a huge part of what it means to know God, to understand Jesus, to understand Christianity. So let's finish with verse 18, which might seem like a bit of a patchwork quilt here, but we've got to remember this is, a, this is a prologue. John's trying to sort of set the stage for everything that's coming. And so this verse 18 actually does sum it up well, even if it seems a little disjointed. No one has ever seen God. He's going back to that. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so last week we looked at, uh, at Moses begging to see the glory of God. Oh, would you show us your glory? And, and we saw where he was hidden in the cleft of the rock and he, he couldn't see God, but he could only see his backside as he went away. And, and even that was enough to, to make him radioactive, basically. Why is it that no one could see God? Well, there were two reasons. Number one, God's a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. Nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> but the second reason is because of our sin and rebellion. We were cast out of his presence. His holy and righteous presence. And so if we were to see him in all of his holiness and all of his perfections, it, it would be our undoing, right? We would melt, as it were, in the heat and the light of, of his holiness and righteousness. But that's where Jesus, the Word, addresses both of these addresses both of these reasons why we could not see God. Number one, he takes on a body. He takes on flesh. And now this God who once could not be seen has a face, has a smile. Can you imagine being one of the disciples, being John, and seeing Jesus smile? And then what did Jesus do with that flesh that he took on? He allowed it to be crushed for our rebellion. He, he gave his life to pay for our sins, restoring us back into God's presence. You and I haven't seen Jesus' face yet. Right? We sang about it earlier on that day that we, we will see his face. And we will see his face if, in fact, we have received from him both grace and truth. The, the truth about our inability and our desperate need and the wonderful, matchless, superabounding grace of him substituting himself for us, living righteously for us, dying sacrificially for us. That, both of those things, that is what it is to understand Jesus rightly. That is what it is to understand Christianity rightly. To have a complete sandwich, if you will. Sandwich bookends both pieces of God's grace for us. That's what Christianity is about. That's what this gospel is getting at. And that's why we are going through it together. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for how you revealed God to us to a depth and to an extent that the law alone could never do. Thank you for how you did that at great cost to yourself. 
Thank You that You continue through Your Spirit to reveal more and more about Yourself, about Your grace, about Your truth through the Word. You meet us here. You meet us in Your Word through the power of Your Spirit week after week, day after day. As we see You there, as we find You there, would You bring us to places of deep worship and praise, deep gratitude and joy. And Lord, grant us a desire that we would help other folks have that same understanding, that same recognition of both grace and truth, that crucial understanding that it's not what you want us to do for you, it's what you have done and completed and finished for us that is at the core of who you are and what it means to be a Christian. Oh, help us, we pray. We ask it in your name and for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.